Uh, first, I'd like to open with just uh, thanking Pastor Steve for the privilege and opportunity to serve the Lord this morning and give a, a brief meditation. Uh, I feel honored to be able to have a chance to do that and come up here in, uh, in front of the church and, and present something that I have worked on a little bit and I'm um, looking forward to sharing with you. We are going to be opening in the book of, of um, Hebrews and in chapter 9 if you follow along. Now we will go back and forth through Old Testament Scripture and New Testament Scripture. We'll bounce around, but we are going to begin in the book of Hebrews and in chapter 9. And well, a brief prayer before we begin. Gracious God, we come before you on the Lord's day, humbled to be in your presence. We praise you and thank you for the privilege and opportunity to serve you, to worship you. Father, I'd ask that you would Open up our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear the truth, to hear the gospel. And that way we may receive the gospel as Pastor Ken comes up in the 11 o'clock hour and, and preaches on the book of Judges. And Father, I'd ask that you just help guide me through this brief meditation so that it may be a blessing to the brothers and sisters of our church. Amen. 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 So... As we, you know, as we started the summer, I think that's when we began, uh, Pastor Steve and Pastor Ken were taking us through the different covenants, and uh, I, I believe we came up to the Mosaic Covenant. I, I can't recall if it was Pastor Steve or Pastor Ken that was preaching on it. I think we paused in the middle of it, um, and uh, yeah, you, know, you know, today is a, a bit apropos, I'd say, because I am going to be speaking about the Old Covenant and New Covenant and how they fit together, and... Um, uh, perhaps, you know, this is a bit apropos to provide us a little br a temporary bridge until, you know, during this brief hiatus until Pastor Steve picks back up in the fall. So um, a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews before I get started. Um, the book of Hebrews is considered, well, I've heard it's been considered the most Old Testament, New Testament book. And it's probably the best book in the New Testament to help us to understand what's going on in the Old. And it is actually considered a fairly neglected book. The writer is showing the way in which the, um, uh, or he's speaking about the fact that the, uh, there was the Old Covenant in the Old Testament where God, whereby God planned to make provisions for the sins of the people of Israel, but that it was pointing forward the whole time to uh, the New Covenant, which would be founded and grounded in Jesus. And the writer here is showing the way in which they fit together. But, so what we're actually addressing here is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And as I was studying this, I realized I didn't know much about it at all. And if you're like me and have a Jewish friend or a Jewish colleague who you get into conversations with, or in my case, maybe in even a heated debate or two, uh, you may be able to answer a question or two and show them that you may know a little bit about it more than they themselves, possibly. So that's just, that's just by the way. So, Hebrews chapter 9, he describes the circumstances in the old days, in the Old Testament, in the structure, the interior design, if you like, of, the, of the, um, the temple, the meeting place of God. And then he goes on to describe the activities that were going on in that context. Quote, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered the outer room regularly to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year. So if you get the picture of this structure that has external rooms, which there's freedom of movement, and yet in the center of it all is this inner room called the Holy of Holies, which was inaccessible all the year 
to everyone except on one day to one man, namely the high priest. Now, this whole deal was pointing forward to the time that the Messiah would come. Now, here's what it says in verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He's talking about going into heaven. And he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, which is the way in which the high priest entered in the Old Covenant, but instead he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, as I told you, we'll be bouncing back and forth through the scriptures. I'm not asking you to go back to Leviticus 16, but the fundamental issue is the fact that what we have in Leviticus 16 which is the third book of the Bible, in the description of the Day of Atonement, is all pointing forward right throughout the whole history of the Old Testament, leading up in the way that you might put pieces in a jigsaw. I don't know if you all do jigsaws at all. Certain families do. My family likes them. Uh, You get this puzzle, you set it on a table, you leave it there, and uh, from time to time people will come in, they'll look at it, they'll ponder it, perhaps they'll put a piece or two in it, and then eventually if that happens on enough occasions, somebody will have the privilege of coming in and putting the last piece in and then the jigsaw will be complete so that's essentially what you have going on throughout the Old Testament, you have the writers of the Old Testament putting the pieces of the the jigsaw in place but all the time right up into the last book of the Old Testament you have this question, where's the final piece for this and that incidentally is a question being asked by Orthodox Jewish people all around the world today because they know that the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 was pointing forward to a day yet to come but they don't have the final piece of the jigsaw. Sadly, they're unprepared to accept that the that the fact that the Messiah was really Jesus, and yet the bright ones, the theological ones, know that he really did fit the prophetic pieces of history. And now they have a question in the back of their mind concerning that. And the longer we go, you know, they're saying to themselves, maybe we miss, maybe we, you know, maybe there wasn't a Messiah, maybe I missed the one who came, or maybe we should actually go back and consider whether he really is that final piece in the jigsaw. And the Hebrew writer is saying, absolutely is, there's no question about it. Examine the evidence and see where it takes you. In the Day of Atonement, the high priest is making atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. But in that context, three things were true. Let me tell you what they were. Number one, access to God's presence was restricted. Now, this is what I point out to you in verses 6 and 7. It said they can go into the outer room, but they could not enter the most holy place except just once a year for the express purpose of making this offering up of sin bit of a shame as well as no sooner had he gone in and started making sacrifices and then he'd come out but while he was in somebody started sinning all over again for 2024 you know so and the good news is uh, they could always wait for the next Yom Kippur but the bad news is they had to wait another 365 days to get the monkey off their back and more importantly the guilt out of their conscience not the best situation not the most ideal situation so access to God's presence was restricted and secondly the offering of sin dealt only with the sins the people had committed in ignorance it says here that he entered the most holy place never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance well you know that's okay on the one hand but what about the ones we don't commit in ignorance right? I'm going to quote something I read on Alistair Begg regarding this topic pretty bold, but I'll say it. He says, I don't know about you, but I don't have time for the sins I committed in ignorance. I, did, I have so many I did flat out willfully. I mean, he's going to be up all night worrying about the ones he did in ignorance. 
So, I mean, I can relate, brethren. I don't know about you. Um, so this sacrifice dealt only with the ignorant ones. Anyone with half a brain is saying to themselves, well, what am I supposed to do about the other ones? Right? I mean, if this sacrifice dealt with the ones we don't know about, what are we supposed to do about the ones that we do know about? And that may be a question you face. Something you said, something you did, something you've carried with you over the last week, over the last month, even over years of your life. You know, I bet you it's probably not uncommon for Pastor Steve or Pastor Ken or Pastor Mike over the course of their pastoral ministries to meet men and women who have come to a great crisis in their life and finally come to a great crisis in their life. And when it all breaks free, one comes to discover that they've been carrying a great burden of guilt over years and years and years, a burden from which they've been unable to find any kind of liberation. Access to God's presence was restricted and dealt only with the sins that people had committed in ignorance And thirdly, its effect was ceremonial and external. This is an illustration, he says, of the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices were not able, not able to cleanse the consciences of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink, various various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So it only dealt with that which was ceremonial and external to me. And you and I know that the real issue is internal. So it never met it. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer in the earlier century, said, Not all the blood of beasts and Jewish altar slang could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. It could wash away the outside, as it were, but it couldn't deal with the inside. That's why, incidentally, Jesus was always addressing the Pharisees, because these guys were experts on the outside. You know, they were always, always wore the right clothes, always attended the right ceremonies, always were standing in the right place, always knew what you were supposed to do on the outside. Washing, always washing ceremonially, washing the cups, washing the dishes, making sure it was all absolutely kosher. And Jesus said, guys, I got news for you. The problem doesn't come from the outside in. The problem comes from the inside out. And they knew he was telling the truth. And they knew that what they were doing couldn't cleanse their conscience. I mean, isn't that an example of, the ult- of ultimate futility? I mean... I mean, that is absolutely last to have a commitment to religious formalism and externalism, which when you lay in your bed at night, you know it doesn't do anything, right? I mean, what good is that? I, I, I mean, what do we call that? Bells and smells? Um, I mean, who cares about that stuff? The fact is, many people do, and many people think that somehow or another they're just not giving enough effort. They're just not attending enough stuff. They're just not doing enough of the thing. And then if eventually they get it all going, then presumably it'll fix their inside. Let me tell you something, it'll never fix your inside. And we all know that. And, and the Jewish people are like many people today, looking for outward things to bring about inward change. So, that's the old. What about the new? What then is the story now that Jesus has come? You see, this is what I love to say to my Jewish colleagues and friends that I get into t- debates with. I say, guys, here's the end of the story. You know, you're looking for an end of the story, at least consider the possibilities of this. Right? I mean... You know, what is the story now that Jesus has come? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Messiah? Well, here's the distinction. It says when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he didn't enter into some tabernacle that had been arranged out in the middle of the wilderness, but he went into heaven himself. He went right into headquarters. He came from there and he went back to there. He had direct access. And secondly, he didn't come with the blood of the bulls and goats and heifers and all that kind of stuff, but he, the priest, 
became the sacrifice himself, that he offered his own body on the tree so that atonement may be made. He's the only one who could. The one who offered had to be a man, but the one who offered had to be sinless. And since there was no sinless man, only he who was both holy man and holy God, who in his perfection could be the sin bearer, and in his humanity could be the point of identification for us, he's the only one who could fit the bill. You see, that's where Jesus stands out on the pages of human history amongst other religious leaders. Buddha never offered to be the savior of sin. Krishna never conceived of himself in that way, nor did any of the other Hindu avatars. But Jesus said, guess what? I'm God. I'm perfect. And when I die on the cross, I'm going to answer the concerns of your conscience. You may say to yourself, well, that's the flat, most flat-out difficult thing I've ever heard. And I've heard that. You know what I say? You're dead right. And you know what else? You'll never believe. You'll never believe unless the Spirit of God pulls the corks out of your ears, takes the shades off your eyes, and says to yourself on your inside, you know what? This is true. This is true. You should believe this. Now, the effect, the effect of this is that Jesus sets people free from what the Old Covenant can never do. The Old was marked by that which was external, temporary, and incomplete. And the New was marked by that which was internal, permanent, and final. And that's really an illustration of where most religion is today. Most religion is external, temporary, and incomplete. But what Jesus comes to speak about is that which is internal, permanent, and final. I mean... Isn't it great that we know, or if you're, if you're not, if you don't know God yet, that there's a way to have your conscience cleansed, your sins forgiven, all your past dealt with, start over with a brand new sheet of paper? It's right here. It's right here. Now, let me give you one final picture that's directly related to this. It has to do with the events surrounding the death of Jesus when he died upon the cross. Um, Matthew records it for us in chapter 27 and verse 50. He speaks about Jesus giving up his life. He said, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And that, that's in accord with what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said, hey, nobody can take my life from me. I got the power to lay it down. I got the power to pick it back up again. So on the cross, he gave up his spirit. And then we're told at that moment that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And as me being a novice to the Bible, um, you know, I was at, what, what curtain is this? What was he talking about? Well, this is the curtain that said you can't, you know, they separated the outer court from the, the inner court, number one. This is the curtain that said you can't get to God. This is the curtain that said you might be able to get to him once a year, but uh, only, only if you send Joe in because he's your main guy, but make sure he brings all the stuff. Not you, Joe, the, the high priest. And... Uh, and remember, as soon as he's gone in and comes back out, you better stick around because he's coming back again in 12 months or 365 more days of your sins of ignorance, not counting the ones you know about. Not the best situation, right? What if you, what if you die in the middle of it? You know, not, not, a, not a great situation, right? We need to know that somebody went in effectively, permanently, and finally, and that's what Jesus did. The book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer says that uh, he bore the sins of the many. Well, who are the many? They're the people that hear the word, believe the word, and commit their lives to Jesus Christ. 
You know, I saw Pastor Steve this week, and I started down Peter's denial um, for, for, as I was preparing for meditation. I just love Peter. I love his character, his story. I just love it. And, um, but we started the covenants, and I knew nothing about it, so I thought it would behoove myself to, to, to learn more about it and understand the different covenants and how it was pointing forward and how they fit together. And I really had a, a good exercise doing that. But now that I, I prayed about it, I asked Pastor Steve, you know, I can't think of a better story in all of Scripture that illustrates how the new covenant sets the guilty conscience free and gives, gives us internal peace. Right? Um, in, as Peter's life. You know, and in particular, his denial in the courtyard. Right? So, we all remember Peter's denial in the courtyard. Right? It was a very sad progression point in his life. He followed Jesus as he said he would. He denied Jesus. The rooster crowed as Jesus said it would. That rang the bell for him. He then remembered. And then he wept. He followed. He denied. He remembered. He wept. And so here you have the eyes of Jesus looking into the eyes of Peter. And Peter saw his eyes and Peter's wept. When Peter wept. So brothers and sisters, let's take a moment, step back, and let's try to put ourselves in Peter's shoes and, consider, and, and keep in mind Peter's strong character and all the boastful and I'll say audacious statements he made to Jesus Christ while he was with him prior to the, prior to the resurrection. I'm going to give you a few examples. Even if they all fall away, I will not. If I... Uh, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Let's say that again. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So, again, here we have Jesus looking in the eyes of Peter after he said this. All of his proud and audacious statements, the guy that gets his sword out and tries to take off the head of the high priest servant, gets an ear. The one that says, Satan, get behind. You're like, Jesus says to him, Satan, get behind. You're like, Satan, you don't have the things of this world, but the things of things of God but the things of this world you guys all know all the stuff that he did prior to prior to uh, uh, being enlightened with, by, by Christ after his resurrection so think about it here you have Jesus looking into his eyes in the courtyard he must have been carrying a great burden of guilt on the inside from the time of his denial in the courtyard up into the breakfast at the beach and I'll get to the breakfast at the beach he must have been hurting inside but the breakfast at the beach, but prior to the breakfast at the beach, there is one, sorry, let me back up. There's one indication about his future that Mark records for us in chapter 16. Let us think in terms of his, the beginning of his recovery or, or, or the beginning of his restoration. I like to call it a little bit of glimpse of hope for Peter. He was so audacious. I can't, it's unbelievable to think about what he said and then what he did. You know, and I, you know, honestly, I love that story because I can see myself in that boat sometimes as well, being very uh, proud and audacious and I'm going to do this. And then you never know when you're in that moment. And but Jesus loves us and he knows. So, um, Mark 16, talking about the beginning of his restoration or the beginning of his hope or a, a glimpse of hope. So here we are at resurrection day. The angel has rolled back the stone. This young man is sitting there and he says to the women holding the spices, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. 
He's risen. He's not here. And go see where they laid him. But go tell the disciples, here we go, and Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So go tell the disciples he's alive and Peter, special mention. Wouldn't go tell his disciples have covered it? Of course it would. Peter was one of his disciples. We all remember the, the servant girl in the courtyard that followed him around. Hey, aren't you one of them? He's one of them. You're definitely one of them. I don't know what you mean. I'm not one of them. I don't know the man. God be my witness, I don't know the man. Know the man. Go tell the disciples he's alive in Peter. Brothers and sisters, you see how wonderful that this is? Because the story of Peter's life doesn't end with the collapse in the courtyard. It doesn't even end with the breakfast on the beach. But the breakfast on the beach settles the demise or gives the guilty conscious peace from the collapse in the courtyard. How does it all end up in John's Gospel? Peter says, I'm going fishing. What did that mean? I mean, I tried to read some commentaries on it. But it means he went fishing with a couple of his disciple buddies. Yeah, They've been out all day. Or not all day. They just got out in the morning. Still breakfast in the morning. Yep, fishing. Hadn't caught anything. And what do you know? A stranger shows up on the beach. How's the fishing? Got nothing. Go the other side. Might as well. They hadn't caught anything all day. Now they can't contain what they're about to bring in. And then one of the disciples in the boat puts two and two together and says, Guys, guys, that's the Master. That's the Lord. He's risen. He's on the beach. What does Peter do? He's out the boat like a shot. And we find him up on the shore at breakfast with Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Peter, Peter, I got three questions for you. Do you love me? Yes. Do you really love me? Yes. Do you really, really love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. That's all I want to know, Peter. Now go out and live for me. Beloved, I, I, this is, I think it's masterful. Right? That his, his threefold denial is met with an opportunity of a threefold affirmation. That here on the beach, by, by the power of God, now, one thing, his life is not defined by what happened in the courtyard, but is certainly marked by the encounter in the court, courtyard. And the reason that it's called the mind is that so Peter can recognize inside that when he was lost, when he was broken, when he denied God after his proud and audacious statements, what did Christ do? Christ came and rescued him. Christ pulled him out of the miry pit, bore his punishment in order that he may enjoy his forgiveness. Despite Peter's classic collapse, he was restored, restored to usefulness. And I've come to the conclusion that the subsequent usefulness of Peter is tied in significant measure to the brokenness of Peter that's recorded for us there in the courtyard. Right? And then although we see him in his broken state, one of his, one of his gifts is his strong character. It wasn't used right prior to the sacrifice. But what do we, how do we see his strong character now when we think of him in all of his proud declaration of the story of redemption on the day of Pentecost as we see him there in the beginning of the book of Acts? But I, however, I, I really truly believe that it's the subsequent exhortations that he writes in humi- uh, to the church about humility. Clothe yourselves in humility. The exhortation that he gives. 
And I think this is a very clear indication of the vast change that went in inside of him in his heart. So now he's out and he's, he's a new man. That's how fast Jesus can work on our lives. You know, I love it that the good work that he begins, he brings to completion. And you and I know that Christ's work on the cross sets us free internally, permanently, and finally. You know, I love how the, the psalmist puts it very clearly in Psalm 34, 8. He says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who puts their trust in Him. And then Peter plays on that same verse with his own words and says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Brothers and sisters, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Because if you have, you would know that our triune God is very good. Amen.